This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Joining me on his um, bi-monthly show, consultant orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Rajesh Singh. We're going to be discussing some of the medical terminology that you might encounter when you get um, a diagnostic test uh, that may be used to confirm or perhaps even rule out a health problem. You may have come across terms like positive, negative results, a margin of error. When is a positive actually a negative? What is the science behind these terms? And can medical language actually be more contextual for individual patients without losing its scientific accuracy? So Dr. Rajesh will be walking us through these linguistics today. How are you, Dr. Rajesh? I'm very well, thank you, Shawik. I'm actually sitting here in my operating theatre while everybody else is taking a break and we're doing this. And I think that's probably going to set the tone for this show. Excellent. I am glad you are so committed to your calling. (laughs) Um, I thought we could start with understanding some of the terms and and using that uh, to expand into perhaps a more philosophical discussion. But some of the terms that I thought we could unpack could be the very basic one, positive and negative results in a test. Do you want to start with that? Okay, so I think COVID's really brought this sort of idea of positive and negative testing home to people, right? So I remember in the Star paper, there's this uh, cartoon by C.W. Key and uh, Key's World. And, you know, the sort of there's a child going home with his report card um, and then there's a father doing his COVID test. And, you know, they're both looking to see whether it's a positive result or a negative result. So, <laughs> Clearly, for a COVID test, having a negative result is a good thing. Um, And for an exam, having a negative result is not a good thing. So I think the key is context, right? So if you look at what you're trying to sort of, the, the question you're trying to answer, you really need to understand the question that's being asked first. And I think that, you know, sort of from my thinking about the subject from my practice over many years, I think people don't really have a good appreciation of what the question is. And so when the answer comes, they misinterpret the answer, right? So let's just look at a positive and negative, for example. So if the question is, and let's frame the question correctly, do I have COVID or not? Well, that's not really the question. That's the sort of answer we're seeking. But If you do a test and the test says, I will show you that you have COVID. Now, the test comes back and you're told you don't have COVID. So that means that you have a negative COVID test. The converse can be, if the test says, I will show you that you have COVID. And the test result comes back and it shows that you don't have COVID. Are they the same thing? Well, it depends because it depends on what the test was designed to do. And I think that this is another thing that's really misunderstood. People don't understand what was the purpose of the test, i.e. what was the test designed to do. And tests are designed to do very limited things. So um, if, for example, you are given three glasses of juice, right? One is watermelon juice, one is apple juice, and one is orange juice. 
and you are told pick a juice. That's different to if you're told taste the three juices and tell me which one is the sweetest. You see, so it's basically a different test. You really have to be clear what you're asking. And the problem that people have with sort of testing is they don't understand what the question is. So let's take today. So I'm sitting here in my operating theater. I've done um, four procedures this morning. And each one of those procedures, the patients would have had some investigation in relation to their procedure to help me answer a very specific clinical question. So let's take the gentleman who have just finished. I did a blood test on him, uh, a test called a full blood count. Now, the purpose of doing the test for me was to look at what his number of red cells were, what his number of white cells were, and what his platelets were, because these are the things that are going to make a difference to the decision that I need to make today. But after his procedure, he went and looked at his blood test and he said, oh, doc, what does this mean? I've got large red blood cells. So he's got some macrocytosis. And he was really quite worried about that, going, oh, I've done this blood test. It's got these big blood cells. You know, is it really bad? And he was slightly alarmed at the fact that I didn't warn him that the blood test may show large red blood cells. You follow? So in this instance, the confusion was because the context of the test was not clearly explained to him, which is the purpose of this test is only to elucidate are your red cell numbers correct, white cell numbers correct, your platelet numbers correct. And then once the test result was available, the fact that his red cells were slightly big were of no consequence. A, because it may happen in a variety of conditions, i.e. it may be a variant of normal. B, it may happen in a large segment of the population of thalassemia, for example, or other minor medical ailments that don't really make a difference. Um, but the patient was not aware of those things. He had a blood test. I assume that he knew what the blood test was about. He looked at the blood test and he was clearly alarmed. So I think that's where a lot of the challenges with sort of patients understanding testing comes in, right? Because there, there, there are two parts to this sort of conversation. One part is patients understanding the outcome of test results. The other part is us as medical practitioners really understanding what patients' concerns are as they go through the healthcare journey. So I'll share, I'll share with you a very interesting story. This is way back in my training days when I was in an obstetric outpatient clinic. So we're looking after pregnant women as a medical student. And this is in a rural and remote town in Australia, uh, where my posting was at the time. And there was a young girl that she must have been, I don't know, 18, 19 um, she was pregnant and she was smoking very heavily. Now, I thought that that was a strange thing to do because, you know, I, she was my patient and I already said to her that, look, if you smoke, your baby will come out small, right? Um, and that's why she was furiously smoking because she was a first-time mother and she was going, oh my God, the baby's going to come out down there. I want the baby to be as small as possible. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you've got this person with 
poor education, poor social support, poor understanding of life. Uh, clearly, the pregnancy wasn't planned or wanted. And she was going to have a very painful experience in life. And she wanted that painful experience to be as least painful as she could. And when she heard the doctor say that if you smoke, your baby will be small, she went, great idea. I'll smoke, my baby will be small. It won't hurt so much. Yeah. So really understanding what patients' fears are or what they really want to know is the basis on which proper communication happens. And so, you know, let's take a situation of uh, positive and negative margins. So this is something that happens all the time. A patient has a biopsy because they have a growth of some description. And we take a piece of the tissue and we send it to the laboratory and the laboratory will come back and tell us, well, the margins are negative or positive. So what does a margin mean? So let's, let's try and contextualize the question first. The context is the patient has a cancer of some description and we want to know in the local area, and I'll emphasize this, we want to know in the local area only, in the surgery that we have done, have we been able to remove all of the cancer cells or not? Now, in surgery, when you're looking at tissue, even if you're looking at it with a microscope, it's not always possible to disturb uh, cells, right, on a cellular level, whether they're normal or abnormal. So we give ourselves an error of margin to say that, well, this tissue kind of looks normal, but I'm going to cut it off anyway, because I know from experience that the distance between the abnormality and the normal tissue must be, you know, whatever it is. So to confirm our knowledge, we send it off to the laboratory and ask the uh, pathologist in the laboratory to answer a specific question, which is, in the margin of tissue that I've given you, are there cancer cells or not in relation to the proportion of normal cells? So he'll come back and he'll tell me the margin is positive. That means that there are still cancer cells beyond where I have cut. Or the margin is negative, meaning that there are no cancer cells in the area that I've cut. But in the care of someone who's undergoing this sort of healthcare episode, it's only really a very, very small piece of information. But they're really worried. You know, they've had cancer, they've had an operation. The question that they really want to know is, Doc, am I going to be okay or not? So they're very attuned to words like positive or negative. They go, oh, you know, the result, the, the biopsy is positive. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, the a biopsy is negative. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because positive and negative are social words. So in thinking about this topic and, you know, sitting here in my operating theater, I think that the real uh, problem is a disconnect between the patient's need for clarity and the information that we have at hand and how we can convey that information to them. I think um, my one question um, has brought us to the end of the first part where we need to go for a break now. But there was a lot in there that I, I still want to tease out a little bit more. Um, for instance, uh, the context of the common COVID tests that we do, which you use as an example. And I want to then ask about accuracy and how do you convey 
how do medical professionals sort of, you know, convey this idea of how accurate a test is in helping patients to then use that information to determine um, how safe are they, um, you know, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, and a lot more that we can tease out together with consultant orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Rajesh Singh. We're discussing um, the language and the way that medical terms are conveyed. And I think this is particularly um, when it comes to undergoing tests, um, making decisions for certain treatments and uh, understanding what are the patient's needs within these conversations. So we'll be right back on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. Joining me on the show today, consultant orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Rajesh Singh from his operating theatre. And uh, we're discussing some of the medical terms that you might encounter when you undergo certain medical tests to either diagnose or rule out health conditions. And these are probably very fraught, very loaded conversations uh, that you then have with your healthcare provider about what this means for you, um, your health status, uh, what kind of treatment decisions need to be made. So words really matter a lot, as you have said, Dr. Rajesh. Um, what to a healthcare provider is a clear-cut picture of um, a positive or negative result or positive margins or negative margins um, in a biopsy um, can sound very different to a patient who's hearing it. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit to some of the things that you had brought up. Now, you used the example of COVID tests because um, we, all of us, I think, understand the um, implications of a positive COVID test or a negative COVID test. But at the same time, how does accuracy come in and how do you help individuals, lay people, understand the grey areas when it comes to the accuracy of a test? Okay, so that's an excellent question. And I think the answer goes back to this issue of context again, right? So tests cannot be seen in isolation without understanding the context in which they've been ordered and the question, the very, very specific question that they seek to answer. So with the COVID test, the context is pretty clear, which is, you know, there's a pandemic happening. And in the pandemic, you may have no symptoms, but you may still have COVID, or you may be sick and you may have COVID. Now, let's look at sort of the understanding of um, a few specific terms, and I'll have to get a little bit technical here um, with, with apology. The context of a test is understood in what's called the pretest probability. So let's sort of, let's frame this correctly. Let's say that somebody uh, is uh, connected up to a heart rate and breathing machine here in my operating theater. And the machine records no heart rate and no breathing. Okay. But the patient is chatting and talking to me. So the pretest probability of the patient being dead is zero because the patient's able to have a jolly conversation with me. 
So the value of the heart rate monitor, which is a test, and the oxygen saturation, which is a test, is zero. It means that the equipment's probably faulty. Now, conversely, if somebody has had an accident on the roadside and has a torso and body in the car and is missing a head, then you don't need to go and check the person's pulse because the pre-test probability of the patient being dead is one, they decapitated. So that's the context of any test. Any test has a pre-test probability. Then there's a specific technical term called uh, a positive predictive value and negative predictive value. So let's go to um, a child having, let's take a common social situation. If you have a young child at home and the child says they're not feeling well, you'll go and you'll check their temperature. And you'll check their temperature because if they have a high temperature, that means that they're not feeling well and you as a parent can reassure yourself that they're not feeling well and can work out why. So in that sense, the positive predictive value of having a fever to indicate that your child is unwell is a certain number. It just depends on what that particular social circumstances. But then if your child doesn't have a fever, you're also reassured. Do you follow? So that sense of being alerted to the fact that yes, my child is unwell, or yes, my child is not unwell, is what's called the positive predictive value. So that's just to give you sort of a social sense of what does a positive predictive value feel like. So in the sense of a COVID test, if you do, if your whole household is sick with COVID, every single member of your family, and you're feeling perfectly well, and you do a COVID test, and your COVID test is negative, what are you going to say? Are you going to say, hey, wow, great, look, everybody's sick. I'm not, I escaped COVID. Or are you going to ask the question, I wonder how many percent of the time somebody has COVID, but the test doesn't show, right? So that's called the accuracy of the test. So the accuracy of the test means that if you actually have it, how likely is it that the test will show you that you have it? Now, no test is 100% accurate. Every test has a degree of accuracy. In medicine, for some reason, we chose the number 95 to say that if a test is 95% accurate, we'll accept the test. But there's still a situation mm. so, in which you... So that would mean um, in 100 people, the test will be accurate in 95 of them? Yes. And in five of them, the test will be wrong. It's pretty scary stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think, if, as, as a lay person, if you think about it, you go, wow. That means that there's a chance that the test I had is wrong. Well, yes, actually, there is a chance that you, the test you had is wrong. And, but that's for a binary test, right? That's for like a yes-no test. Not a sort of test that goes on a gray scale or the test that is subject to a subjective opinion. Um, and my pet peeve here is x-rays. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I like x-rays. X-rays are great. But, you know, I have a pet peeve with relation to the use of x-rays in trying to diagnose osteoarthritis, or joint disease. Because the x-ray diagnosis, while very, very um, specific, 
doesn't have a very good positive predictive value for long-term outcome. So again, you have to ask the right question. You have to say, so let's go back to your example of COVID test again, right? Um, you hike the spit out, you put it in the little uh, tube, you know, you add the reagent to it, you mix it about, and then you drop it on the slide. And then you watch and see, is that line going to come or is that line bright or is that line faint? Um, so pregnancy tests are exactly the same. So pregnancy tests have a positive predictive value, a negative predictive value, um, and accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity, just like the COVID test. So there are better quality COVID tests and lesser good quality COVID tests, and the better quality COVID tests basically um, are a bit more expensive, but they're basically uh, more sensitive. So that means that if you have the virus, the test will pick it up. So that means that it has a high sensitivity and a high specificity. So sensitivity and specificity are a function of the test. Positive and negative predictive values are a function of the situation. So it gets, let's get back to the situation now where your whole household is sick with COVID, you have not had COVID and you're feeling fine. You do the test and the test is negative. The positive predictive value of the test, given the fact that it's a very sensitive test, is high. That means that you actually don't have COVID. But in a practical sense, does it really matter? Because at this very minute, you don't have COVID, but you're living in a household full of people who are sick. They're all sort of coughing and breathing on you and sharing the same food. Chances are you're going to get sick tomorrow. Right? So that's sort of, again, the contextualization of a test is really important. So, you know, there's urban legend that somebody comes into a hospital, has an angiogram to test their heart, the angiogram's completely clear, walks out and drops it in the car park. Right? Yeah, I know. So that's, that's sort of, urban, that's, that's urban myth. Maybe you haven't heard it outside of the medical circles, but that's sort of urban myth in the medical circles. And so the question in that situation is, um, what was the positive predictive value of the angiogram in this person? An angiogram is a test where they inject dye into the vessels of the heart and see whether there's any constriction or not. So, you know, you, you we could we could sort of go on all day about sort of different examples, but the key key point in this is it's the context and the question that you're trying to answer. So so far, all the tests we've spoken about are benign tests. So that means that that these tests don't have any risks involved with them. But there are medical tests that have risks involved. With them. And so, say, for example, an angiogram is a test that has a risk involved in it. And an angiogram is where we squirt um, some dye into the vessels of the heart, and then we look at whether there's a blockage in the vessels of the heart or not. Now, the risk of the procedure is exceedingly small, but not zero. So you'd really want to ask yourself a couple of questions before you were to proceed with the test, which is, the first thing is, what's the pre-test probability of me having heart disease or coronary artery disease. The second thing is, what is the specificity and sensitivity of the test? And we know that for angiograms, they're very, very specific and very, very sensitive. Meaning that if the test shows that you have a blockage, you have a blockage. It's extremely unlikely that the test was wrong. Okay, So the specificity and the sensitivity is very high and the specificity is very high. So if you've worked out that the test has a very high sensitivity and very high specificity, then why wouldn't everybody just go out and get one? 
you know, because nobody wants to drop dead of a heart attack. So hey, why don't you just go out and get your angiogram done? Because the angiogram itself may kill you in the rare circumstance. So you have to ask yourself, what is the likelihood that somebody has coronary artery disease? Well, if they're 50 years old, their father died when he was 45, all three brothers have severe coronary artery disease at age 35, and this person's 50 and has chest pain on exertion, the pretest probability of having coronary artery disease is one, right? So then the question is, what does the angiogram add? Because remember, we're talking about tests and understanding tests. So in this situation, the angiogram isn't to make a diagnosis. Blind Freddy can make a diagnosis that he's got coronary artery disease. The angiogram is to say, well, how bad is the disease and whether there's something that we can do about it, hmm. right? Same test, different perspective. All right. Um, assuming that that is something that patients are able to work through, how then do you communicate about effectiveness of treatment? And um, because we've already gone into an angiogram will help you determine how severe it is and what needs to be done after that. And then that conversation about which treatment option perhaps, right? And then that's when doctors start to say, this one is so much effective and that one is perhaps less effective. Now, um, what needs to be bridged here between the medical provider's perspective and the patient's perspective in terms of what is what are the outcomes and the quality of life that they desire? Um, I think you've gone one step ahead there, because this is this is a common this is a common mistake that people make. People talk about the outcomes before the process, because you see, as doctors, we are expert in terms of the technical aspects of our illness. And I'll share with you. I'll share with you a story. Um, I was in a rheumatology clinic, and in rheumatology, we, we deal with uh, people who have diseases of joints, diseases of skin. And this lady came in with a condition called psoriatic, uh, psoriatic arthropathy. So, so psoriatic arthropathy means that they have a rash, and then they have joint diseases associated with that rash. Now, you know, being the young doctor, you know, I examined her, looked through her blood results, spoke to her about her disease, staged the disease. And I said to her, look, your disease is really very good because you have no joint damage at all. All your blood numbers are looking great. And you know what she did? She took her scarf off and showed me this bright red patch around her neck. And she said, no, it's not. Because for her, she cannot wear anything that exposes her neck. Right? She has to keep her neck covered all the time because she's got this scarlet rash that goes around her neck. So for me, a medical disorder is not the same as her social disability. So if you say to me, what's the sort of communication bridge that needs to be crossed? It is the bridge of values. What is it that the patient values? Does the patient want to be pain-free? Or does the patient want to avoid certain parts of treatment? Or is the patient particularly fearful of something? And, you know, I get lots and lots and lots of opinions from patients, for second opinions, patients coming in and saying, do I really need the spine surgery? That's probably the most sort of classic one, right? And 
they've seen very, very, very good spine surgeons. You know, some sort of they would have seen people who might respect a great deal um, as technical spine surgeons. But they'll still come and ask me the question. And the question that they ask is, but there's a risk of paralysis with the surgery. Should I have the surgery? Then my answer is very simple. My answer is, well, let's look at the situation that you're in now and ask, is your quality of life today livable? Yes or no? If it were to get worse, how much worse would it get? That's the first question. The second question is, is your quality of life today livable? And if you don't do anything, are you likely to get better or are you likely to get worse? Can, can, you, provide, can you provide that answer for them? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's in, in, in these situations where they've come, it's usually pretty clear, right? It's, it's, so there's, there's, so let, let's go back to a simple clinical example. There's a lady who came in. Uh, she was a friend's relative who was visiting from overseas. And she had a condition called varicose veins. So varicose veins is where veins in the leg dilate. And she had them for some time and she was having swelling of the legs and some conditions of her skin where her skin was already starting to get damaged. And she said to me, Doc, should I get this treated? And my first question to her was, how long do you intend to live? <laughs> Rather, taken aback, thinking, what a rude doctor. But the answer was, the answer was, she didn't want surgery because her family members who lived in another country and had surgery with relatively poor outcomes. But the country that she was living in had a relatively very good standard of health care. And so if she didn't have a varicose veins treated, she would develop skin complications and ulceration within a time frame of about 10 or 15 years. Now, if she intended to live only five years, then she clearly didn't need the surgery. If she intended to live more than 20 years, she definitely needed the surgery. So the contextualization there was to understand what's this woman really asking about. And to answer that question, I had to ask her, look, you know, you're asking me a very specific question about the surgery. What does this mean to you? What are your fears? What are your concerns? And her fears were that she would have the surgery and still end up with ulcers, just like all her family members did. But they had surgery in a relatively worse setting than this lady had access for healthcare. So her outcome with the surgery would be prevent complications for the next 10 or 15 years of my retirement when I plan to travel, do things, enjoy life, contribute to you know, society, do my charitable work, do my social work. And the, the risks of the surgery were relatively small in that context. So, totally agree with you that um, it comes back to the, the, what, what's, what we need to do to bridge it is values. Um, I think a common and a very familiar um, experience for people seeking healthcare is uh, that they have a complaint, a pain or a functional disability, um, but the healthcare provider looks not at them, but at the values of test results, right? Um, I've sent you off, uh, sent your blood off for some work. Um, I have, uh, you know, scheduled you for this, this, this scans. And they approach the conversation with the person by looking at these test results. So you're okay here, you're okay here, and not okay here. Um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, that seems to be also having jumped a step ahead in, in terms of that, that picture. Absolutely, absolutely. And part of that is the unfortunate situation of the industrialization of the medical healthcare system. Um, and the medical healthcare system is not to blame, society is to blame. You know, people want their healthcare like fast food. You know, I press a button, I get it. Healthcare doesn't work like fast food. Healthcare works like healthcare. Education works like education. You know, I think, I think the sort of the I wouldn't call them the slow burn love, but the non-instant gratification aspects of life have been sullied by the instant gratification aspects of life, and they're non-transferable. So people come into a healthcare context expecting an instant reply or an instant outcome or an instant solution, and so the industrial complex seeks to provide that. And in some circumstances, it does. You know, if, if you come in with undifferentiated abdominal pain and you have a CT scan thinking, oh, I wonder if this is an appendix or not, that may help you sleep better at night because the CT scan is pretty sensitive as to whether somebody has an appendicitis or not. I mean, it's not absolute, but it's pretty sensitive. And certainly, objectively, we would have picked up and treated more patients with early appendicitis because we've got these modern technologies than if we didn't, right? So I'm not questioning the technologies and I think that that's probably not where we want to go. What we want to do is we want to ask the question, what's the appropriateness of this technology in this particular context? And it's a social construct. You know, patients will come in and say, I have this complaint, but I only want it investigated and treated under my insurance. So then can you admit me to hospital to do that? And the answer is, if it's not indicated or that's not appropriate, then they get unhappy with that. They go, well, I've got insurance, why cannot? Right? So I think the issue of values has to be a two-way conversation. People, say people, the public can't have it all their way. You know, if you want, if you want to subscribe to a values-based healthcare approach, then you have to walk the talk. You have to say, well, this is the approach that I'm taking and I'll follow through with the approach. You know, you can't have sort of, let's say the best of both worlds, but you can't subscribe to two systems at once. You either subscribe to the industrialized complex that looks as, at you as parts, or you subscribe to the system that looks at you as a whole. And one of the characteristics of a system that looks at you as a whole is in it's inevitably great. It's inevitably a little bit nebulous it's inevitably a little bit more slow. And that's because the tincture of time is actually very valuable to reveal a lot of things. Um, the, there's a guy called Atul Gawande. So Gawande has written um, tons and tons about healthcare and the healthcare experience. And one of his stories that really struck with me was how he took care of a lady who had what we call a ruptured triple A. That means a large vessel in her belly was rupturing. And the chance of her dying in that situation in hospital was more than 50%. But she refused to have the surgery going, no, that's not compatible with, you know, the kind of life that I want. And she was still alive four years later, right? But the textbook tells us that she should have died. So, yes, on a statistical basis, she should have died. But statistics aren't the individual. And, you know, having sort of, applying the relevance of those statistics to a particular individual 
requires some sort of understanding of how those statistics were derived, um, what's happening with this individual biologically, and also what sort of the social needs of this individual are. So clearly this lady who chose not to have the surgery is in a much better position than she would have been if she did have the surgery. Mm. On the flip side, there's a 50% chance that she'd not be here today. But the decision was hers to make. Absolutely. The decision was hers to make. She made it in clear mind. Um, and, you know, she had the benefit of the decision. So, you know, Gawande does also um, look at what can be changed in the system. And... I can't help but feel that, yes, collectively as a society, we've come to demand this uh, immediacy uh, in the industrial, uh, you know, sort of behemoth that is medicine today. But we, we're also just cogs in, 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 in the system, right? Um, we Individually, we have no way of um, being able to change it unless we know exactly what kind of questions to ask, as you said, what to ask of our healthcare providers. And that's something that perhaps we don't have the literacy to do so uh, and our providers don't have the time to lie on. Uh, yeah, I think literacy, I, I, I do think that our public healthcare literacy is relatively low uh, in the Western medicine context, right? Because I think that they are competing they're competing values in healthcare that we grew up with. But I don't think that's unique to us. You know, the other society that I've seen this in is Korea because both Korea and Malaysia uh, basically developed around the same time, right? So we've gone through that sort of whole development process. And I, I've got a, 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 a course that I teach on in Korea. I used to go twice a year, now just once a year. And it's amazing to see the difference in healthcare literacy between the elderly Koreans, i.e., you know, 60 and above, um, and the young Koreans, i.e., 30 and below. And you'd see the same dichotomy in Malaysia with people who grew up in rural areas versus people who grew up in urban areas. Because in rural areas, your exposure is to the Bidan, the Clinic Besa, the Bomo, uh, and the Bone Setter. Whereas in an urban setting, your exposure would be to a GP, uh, to a specialist, uh, to a hospital, to an ambulance, to a medical facility. So you'll find that people's healthcare literacy is largely an experience of their life exposure. Where, in what context did they grow up? And so you find that the urban poor are the ones who suffer basically the worst outcomes of everybody because their healthcare literacy is only in relation to allopathic Western medicine. Whereas people who grow up in a more rural environment, they have an exposure to that sort of traditional aspects of healthcare as well, which I think are equally valid as allopathic Western medicine when it comes to caring for the whole individual. And sure, they may not be great at, you know, uh, fixing somebody's broken femur. But there's a lot of psychosocial elements to ailments that they do with really well. So, you know, this idea of improving healthcare literacy is attempting one for the social policist uh, or the social policy maker going, oh, if 
account only, I can educate my public a little bit better, they would have better healthcare outcomes. But it's largely a question of the public's experience in life. So you need to engineer life experiences in public and, you know, just simple things like, and we've got a lot of stuff, right? Like, you know, our maternal and child health is very good. Um, our vaccinations are very good. Um, our infant mortality is very, very low. Um, you know, our public health systems are very good. You know, infectious, communicable diseases, very, very well controlled. You know, tuberculosis, um, touch wood, is under control in this country. We just have to look uh, to the Philippines and see what, you know, uncontrolled tuberculosis looks like. We just have to look at India and see what uncontrolled tuberculosis looks like. So we have a lot of success in terms of policy for health education, uh, but not so much for health literacy. What would you like listeners to take away from this very vast conversation today? Um, interesting point. I think if you, you started talking about sort of tests and things like that, I, I think go with a context. Try to sort of give your healthcare provider what's the context of the decision you're trying to make. Because we don't necessarily know that, you know, there will be two 70-year-old ladies sitting in front of me in the clinic. One of them plans to travel the world and do a lot. The other just wants to be at home for their grandchildren. And so how I approach their needs are going to be very different depending on who these people are. And, you know, I'll sort of suss that out based on my conversations with the person. But, you know, if they come and tell me, look, you know, doc, I'm just looking after the house. I want to potter around. You know, my knees ache. Can you make them not ache so that I can potter around the house, maybe go for social event, go for dinner, stand up, you know, go see my grandchildren. I've got one son in US, one son in Australia. You know, grandchild being born there. I want to do all these things, can or not. So that sort of gives me a lot more context as opposed to talking about the medical disorder. So tell me about your social, tell us about your social disability and what your expectations are in terms of us being able to alleviate your social disability. And then we'll try to frame that medical disorder in the context of your social disability. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Rajesh. I've been speaking to Dr. Rajesh Singh, consultant, orthopedic surgeon. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.